Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. My name's Glenn. Have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at City Light Bennington. And really glad you're here. I have seen new faces here this morning. I know because I pay attention. I've never seen you before. So I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, We exist to multiply Jesus-centered, spirit-led disciples and churches. And I get the joy of preaching God's word this morning. As a church, that's what we do. We open up the, the word of God. Start chapter one, go till it's done in books of the Bible. That's our normal mode of operation the majority of the time uh, in the year. So I want you to open your Bibles right now, if you brought one, to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John chapter 17. We continue to work our way through this eyewitness account to the life of Jesus, and it was recorded by one of his best friends who was with him all along, and church, we've been witness to a lot. Most recently, just to give a little bit of context here, Jesus has gathered his disciples into this upper room for a private conversation. And in this room, Jesus serves his disciples and he washes their feet, calls them to love one another in that same way. He then tells them that he's going to go away. He's going to depart from them physically. He won't be with them. He warns them. That the persecution of the world, the hatred of the world for their allegiance to him is coming. But he promises to send help, his very spirit, to be with them, to be within them. It's a lot for these men to handle. It's difficult for them to comprehend. And so with his death looming, with his goodbye to his disciples happening, Jesus makes a little transition. Jesus pauses and he does something amazing. He prays. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus, God the Son, prays, lifts his eyes to heaven and has a conversation with God the Father. And this is the most epic prayer ever recorded. Goat prayer, all right? There is no debate. Many of you are familiar with uh, Matthew, uh, the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches us how to pray. This is Jesus praying. This is a picture of of what Jesus is actually doing right now in our lives. His word tells us that he's interceding for us at the right hand of God every day, every moment, every hour. Right here in John is the only long, continuous prayer of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. So we get to eavesdrop on this prayer. and It's so profound, so reflective of God's heart and his attitude, so meaningful and important and applicable for us, his church today, that we're going to spend the next four weeks studying its truths. Gospel of John chapter 17. As you get settled there by way of introduction, I want to take us back to the year 2018. It's a year many of us miss because it was prior to COVID-19. Let's just be honest. In 2018, the, uh, the Oscar winner for best documentary feature that year was Free Solo. Has anyone seen the documentary Free Solo? A few brave people here in the room. I may have talked about this before, Um, I guarantee you my hands were more sweaty than yours. Greatest horror movie of all time. If you haven't seen it, Free Solo, it's a form of climbing that professional climbers do where the climber performs alone. There is no rope. There's no harness. They rely entirely on their ability instead. Free soloists typically climb far above safe heights where a single fall would result in death, which happens about as often as you think it would when a person tries to scale a half-mile cliff face with no 
safety equipment. This is a real profession that real people pursue. This particular documentary follows Alex, and these are actually pictures of Alex. He's a free soloist who for seven years has been eyeing and training El Capitan in Yosemite Park, a formation that's about 3,000 feet of near vertical granite from base to summit that no one had ever free soloed. And what fascinated me about this documentary, this, this story of Alex is that he was so pure, single-minded, almost numb in his determination to scale that mountain at whatever cost. Throughout the documentary, you see his training. You see his regiment. You see his routine, his diet, his exercise, all of his roped, supported climbing. He has this notebook with pages and pages where he memorizes every single grip and ledge and turn and movement all the way from the bottom to the very top, often relying on lips in the rock that are the size of a pencil eraser for him to put his chalked fingertip on for stability. Listen, Alex knows that death is not only possible, but probable. He receives during this documentary news of friends and fellow climbers falling to their death. The dude isn't faced. He has a woman that he's committed to who would likely marry him, the longest and most successful dating relationship he's ever had, but he's not concerned with leaving her behind. He has friends that he's climbed with, men and women who love him and cheer him on. Family. He's not concerned with how his death might affect them. The man don't care. Climbing this mountain was the one thing that defined Alex's reality, that told Alex how to live. It was the focal point of his life. It was the thing that informed everything else in his life. It ended up governing his time, his emotions, his relationships, his very heart. Why am I telling you all of this, church? It's because this morning in our text, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to pray for glory. Glory. He's going to pray that our hearts would be similar to Alex's heart, consumed and compelled and motivated and informed, not by a mountain, but by Jesus Christ and his person and work and his life and his death and his resurrection and his glory. Jesus is going to petition the Father based on who he is and what he's about to accomplish on the cross for all that glory. Father, glorify me and his prayer is going to be that every disciple from every generation, every born-again, faith-filled Christ follower, every person in this room this morning who has been spiritually awakened to the one true God in Jesus, that our heart and our attitude would express the big idea I want to drive home today. It's quite simple. Give God his glory. Give God his glory. Jesus' prayer for glory should be our prayer, church. And when Jesus prays, what do you think the answer is? <laughs> it's yes. Might the story of our lives and the story of City Light Bennington be the positive answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago for his own glory? Pick it up with me in verse 1. This is what he prays. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, after he's comforted his disciples, if you look in the verse right before that, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. How many times have I used the word glory already in this morning's sermon? 
Glory is kind of a religious word we toss around a lot. That word glory is used no less than 42 times in the Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus. It feels kind of spiritual when we say it, but what does it really mean? Church, glory, that word glory, it means awe and beauty. Glory is gravity and weight. Glory is the attractive, magnetic power that something or someone possesses that captures attention. And it keeps that attention and it doesn't let that attention go. Glory is all of those things. And Jesus, because of the work he's about to accomplish, is saying, all that glory is mine. Jesus asserts three things as to why he should get all the glory. It's why he prays for glory. And the first one is his authority. It's his authority. Look with me at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus, the son, speaking of himself here is saying, I have authority over all flesh. That word flesh means more than the human body. Most often in the New Testament, flesh is referring to people in their selfish, sinful nature. What this means is that Jesus holds the keys to the ultimate destiny of every single person's heart, all flesh. It means that Jesus holds the keys to the salvation of every soul. All flesh is at his disposal. The changing of Every person's mind, their being, all flesh, is Jesus's and it's at his discretion. That means the power that you and I need to actually be delivered from sin's grip, the things in your life right now that you really, really want to be different in you, the things you know are destructive, the things you know you don't want, and you can't seem to shake those things, those habits, those ways of living that don't reflect the holy character of God. You don't have the authority. Jesus has the authority. He has authority over all flesh. And in case you forgot, this is just another opportunity, church, for us to look at this and say that a change of heart, a change of mind, a way for someone to look back and say, I'm not who I once was, that will be because the work of Jesus in a person's life. Just to be crystal clear, Jesus has all authority over the corrupting and enslaving power of sin that holds us in bondage. None of us wants to be enslaved. None of us wants to be in bondage. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no name given under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. No other authority that exists. Only Jesus can free me. Only Jesus can free you. So give him his glory. Look at verse 5. Hop down to it. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is Jesus speaking about his nature in Isaiah 42 and 48. God, Yahweh, proclaimed that he shares his glory with no one. The only way that Jesus can pray this is if he were Yahweh himself, co-equal with God the Father. This is not only a reminder that Jesus is not just some historical figure. He's not just some religious teacher of old or a worker of miracles, but he is the one 
true, eternally existing, no beginning, no end God. But it also reminds us that his sacrificial death was no surprise to him. Jesus' death was not a point of weakness. His death that he was about to experience was not a failing of any sort as his followers might have feared. It was the carrying out of a perfect plan from the beginning, from before the beginning, from before the foundations of the world when God knew he would create things good and sin would enter into the world and people would run in the opposite direction and declare themselves to be God, God loved. And he had a plan. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, wait, 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 wait. My hour has not yet come. Hold on. My hour has not yet come. Wait, the time has not yet come. And right here at the beginning of this prayer, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The salvation for sinners exercised by God because he so loves the world was already in motion. This laying down of his sinless, obedient life, being spit on, God in the flesh being whipped, mocked, beaten, nailed to a Roman cross to bleed out and stop breathing like the worst criminal. This was a willing choice made by a loving Savior. Jesus himself said in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. Come on, somebody. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again in my resurrection. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus has always had authority, church. Jesus will always have authority. And for my born-again friends in the room, for those of you who've bowed your knee to Jesus, you call him Savior. You call him Lord. You would say you are a Christian As I was reading this, I just felt so prompted to press in and say that this kind of authority needs to wash away our insecurities. Um, My story is one of insecurity. I grew up a pastor's kid. My dad um, had a name and a role in our local church, and I was my father's son. And out of me and my two other siblings, I look and talk and act just like my pop's. So there was an expectation from a young age that I would be like Jeff Lawson. And I learned from a young age how to play whatever role I needed to play in whatever circumstance I was in. I remember so fearing people that in elementary school, I began to shape my Christian friends and my non-Christian friends. Some of you are like, been there? Middle school, Christian friends, Christian identity. High school, non-Christian friends, non-Christian identity. College, Christian friends, non-Christian friends. I was very performance and success oriented. Sometimes I wouldn't even enter into things or try to do things for fear of losing before I even started. I hoped that the least amount of people possible would know about any flaws, any shortcomings in me. I remember marching on to campus post-college in the pastorate as a missionary to college students. And I would sit down and talk to guys about the gospel who were just a year or two younger than me. And if I'm being honest with you, church, I would care more in that conversation about that guy sitting across the table liking me, warming up to me, than bowing his knee to Jesus. I would sit across that table and I would do whatever I could to just keep enough of the gospel message, but boy, would I water it down. I wanted that guy across the table to approve of me, to approve of my ministry, 
more than I wanted him to know and savor and see Jesus Christ for all he was worth. Even when I first started preaching the Bible in front of 100 college students on Thursday nights, I remember being sick to my stomach days before I would even get up in front of students. And do you want to know why I was sick to my stomach? It wasn't because I was burdened for students in the room to come to know Jesus and I was on my knees praying. It wasn't because I thought that there were going to be students in the room that the Holy Spirit of God was going to minister to and I was begging him and praying, God, please do it. Don't, don't leave them without feeling your presence. Don't let them leave the room without your word gripping their heart. Jesus, let them see you. No, no, no. My stomach would be whirling because I cared that I would walk off the stage afterwards and have respect and admiration from college students that were younger than me. I praise God that a change came in my life one Thursday night when I sat crying in my car. God, I'm so tired of feeling sick to my stomach. I'm so tired of being so afraid of people. I'm so tired of being afraid to walk on campus and share your gospel. I'm tired of any sense of discomfort in me. God, why do I have such discomfort? I know you. The change maker was Jesus' authority. It was reflecting on his authority in my life. Listen, it's one thing to be a timid, insecure man. It's another thing to be a timid, insecure man who becomes a timid, insecure Christian. One person is in charge, church. One person has victory. One person is Lord. One person will be bowed down to. One person will prove victorious. One person everyone will answer to and reckon with. One person there is to fear and trust and know. And I know him. And I belong to him and I am backed by him. And he is my strength. And when he gets the glory in my heart, I get boldness. I get courage. I get my swagger back. Some of y'all in this room right now, you are losing or you have lost your courage in Christ. God is with you. The living God is on your side. He will help you. You stopped fighting the battle against sin. You stopped fighting the battle against the evil one. You've given up your witness outside the safety of your private life. You felt small and insignificant amongst people who don't follow Jesus. You're afraid that it will cost you to follow God, to go his way, to speak his way. Let me remind you of some things this morning. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, of all things, everyone will worship in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Stop sweating Stop tripping. His most recorded command is do not fear. Follow Jesus. Trust Jesus. He has all authority. Give him his glory and walk by faith. Saints, don't shallow your witness. You do not have something to prove. You have everything to give. That is your story and mine in Jesus Christ. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for all people. The second reason Jesus gives for his authority 
or his worship, or his glory, excuse me, is his friendship. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is another reminder that eternal life doesn't happen after a Christian's funeral, but it happens the day we repent of sin, and we trust in Jesus, and we let him run our life. In fact, eternal life as we see it in scripture has much less to do with duration, quantity, than it has to do with quality. It's an abundant life. It's a full life. It's a blessed life. Eternal life happens when someone comes to know, understand, experience, have an ongoing, interactive, personal relationship with the living God. And there are people in this room who can say that nothing compares to that. Amen? The word know in Greek, ginosko, such a rich word. It is to perceive, to experience, to feel. So much more than intellectual agreement. The central message of the Christian Bible is that Jesus reconciles us to God, brings us back to God, calls us home to God, reunites us to God, restores us to God brings us his true friendship. We don't add eternal life to our life. We don't compartmentalize eternal life as something to think about on Sundays and look forward to in the future God's kingdom and his friendship and knowing him. Eternal life is right now. It's today. It's an entirely new way of being human. It's a new condition and nature. It's new power, new motives. New purpose, new thoughts, new will. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. You can experience that for free by faith today. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are being destroyed. Why? Because they don't know me. When I reflected on friendship, as I was thinking about God, what it's like to know you, I just thought about the people that God has put in my life. I think about guys like Roy and Justin that I get to labor alongside. Men in my life who are so different than I am. And there are qualities and, and characteristics in these men that show me so much of who God is. I, I think of how Roy walks into a room and just brings life. Just is a, a, a burden lifter the moment he shows up. Is that not our God? I think of how he has wisdom and he prays and waits on the Lord, and he's thoughtful with his approach to things. I think about how Justin has incredible compassion. He cares so deeply that people in our church that are hurting and burdened would have that lifted, that they would know the Redeemer, Jesus. He goes to bed at night not thinking about programs and vision and structure and anything. He goes to bed thinking about people and their hearts. I get around Susan Brown, and Kyle Dorr and Alex Metchke, and I have joy because I'm with people who have joy. I get around my wife, Kate, and she accepts me. She sees my very worst, and she loves me, and she enjoys me. There's people in your life that give you buoyancy. There's people in your life that you know if you tell them what's really going on in your heart, they're not going to hold back from you. They're going to tell you like it is. There's friends you need that will say hard things to you. There are people in your life who will sit down and you can talk for an hour and they will be glad to listen. 
they incline their ear to you. They want to hear about everything that's going on. They don't care about them. They care about you. Leon Morris, an old theologian, pastor, says this, in this world we are familiar with the truth that it is a blessing and an inspiration to know certain people. Much more is it the case when we know God. <laughs> I love and delight in all of those people in my life, and there's many more in this room I could speak about. They are all a reflection of the greater capital P person that I've come to know through Jesus. Listen, everything you read in the Bible, every amazing truth that you come by, every theological doctrinal concept that you have conviction on, it's all meant to tell you who God is. Jesus says, not come to the church, all who are weary and burdened. Not come to the Bible. Not come to your friend. Not come to a city group. He says, come to me. It's all a means to an end. I think about how in our lives we read something in scripture, we sing a worship song, we're talking to our Christian friends and our family, and we say, that's good, that's amazing, that's wise, that's beautiful, that's powerful. Church, might we look to heaven and say, God, you are amazing, you are powerful, you are wise, you are trustworthy. God wants you to have a personal relationship with him. That is eternal life. Give him his glory. Give him a personal relationship today. Finally, Jesus asserts one more reason for his glory. And it's the very thing that makes a personal relationship with him possible. It is his sacrifice. John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on earth. That means I lived a righteous life on earth. And then he says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is this work? It's that Jesus Christ died a sinner's death so that sinners could be treated like Jesus. So that we could be forgiven. So that our sin could be nailed to the cross. That it could be forgotten. That it could be cast as far as the east is from the west. I wonder right now in the room who feels burdened by shame and guilt. Clear your conscience today in Jesus' name. He accomplished the work. He said on the cross, it is finished. He is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. That is the work that he came to do. And when Jesus rises from the grave after that, he overcomes and transcends everything. There is nothing else worthy of glory the way that Jesus is worthy of it. So I want to conclude with a couple of applications this morning. If you are a Christian in the room, don't miss this. A heart that loves God's glory will be a life that gives God glory. A heart that loves God's glory will be a life that gives God glory. Part of God's work in your life and mine is to restore his glory in us. It's all the ways that we reflect him and his character and nature that were marred and broken in the fall. Back in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered in. And church, God's glory in our lives, it may not be what we think it is. God's glory is his death. Jesus looks to heaven and says, Father, glorify me because I've accomplished the work you sent me to do. 
an instrument for shame was Jesus' instrument for glory. The very event that would disgrace and humiliate Jesus on that cross is the very work by which he is worshipped across the globe by people whose sins that he bore that day on Calvary. This means a couple things. First, God truly does turn shame into glory. God redeems all things. God can rewrite any story. God can begin a new work and bring renewal to any situation. He can turn shame into glory. We rob God of glory when we hold on to shame. Shame was killed on the cross. Second, it means that it is a glorious thing. It's an all-powerful thing. It's a God-glorifying thing for us to serve, for us to give our life away, to sacrifice, to deny ourselves, to humble ourselves, to lift up and encourage and provide for and intercede for and forgive and believe the best in others. When we deny ourselves, we're not just being good people. It's glorious. It is a painting a picture of God and who he is to a watching world. When we show up to church on a Sunday morning, not just to receive what pastor has to preach or to receive the worship music, but to come and give, to come and honor others, to come and welcome others, to come and sacrifice for others, to prayerfully come and, and give a word of encouragement, even a prophetic word to others. When we show up ready to give of ourselves, it is glorious. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. It's a big deal in God's eyes. So I want to ask you this morning, church, does your heart love God's glory? Do you see Jesus' authority? Do you see the friendship that he offers? Do you see the sacrifice that he has made? Because if your heart loves his glory, you will live a life for that glory. If you're not yet a Christian in the room, I want you to know this morning that we are all created as worshipers. There is something about our nature that makes us worship something and someone at all times. We need to get this. There, is, there are not those who glorify God and those who glorify nothing. There are, there's not a real life battle that we like to think there is between theism and atheism. Every person walks into this elementary school this morning with knees bent to something. Someone or something is drawing the glory in your life. We all have functional gods that define our reality, that tell us how to live, that enslave us. Things today that are ruling our lives that are not God. The thing that's really terrible about those things is that when we fail them, all they do is condemn us more and more. When we fail God, he forgives. The thing about those things is that they overpromise and overpromise and overpromise and continually underdeliver, 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 and we are never content. God does not overpromise and underdeliver. He is a promise keeper. Nothing God says does not come to pass. No truth that He has revealed to us is not true. You can bank your life on it. And by placing your faith in Jesus, you can have every spiritual blessing that there is. And it cannot be robbed from you. It cannot be taken from you. Tim Keller, author, pastor, says an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to, to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
I pray for anyone who's in here today, if you do not know Jesus, there is abundant life, eternal life being offered to you by faith. It is grace. It is a gift. Jesus wants you to know him and have an ongoing interactive relationship with him. For all of us, church, today he wants us to see afresh his authority, his friendship, his sacrifice, and for our hearts to love his glory. Church, give God his glory. Give God his glory. Let me pray. I want to pray this over us from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, starting in verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the lowercase gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And here it is, church. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God, would you receive all the glory? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.